welcome to Three Blondes, One Battle. Um, I have a amazing guest slash friend of mine joining us today. Super excited to talk to him. Um, today, Dan Nevins is here. What up, Dan? Hey. hey. Hi. So we decided that we were going to talk about overcoming the diagnosis and um I was going to read your bio, but I feel like we have so much to talk about and you're just like a rock star. And I feel like most people know who you are. Um, but I know like as the person you're like, okay, people don't really know me, but I promise you, Dan, like people know you. <laughs> um, yes, you're that oh cool. You're that cool. Um, so they can go and read about you. I mean, you're on Facebook, you're on Instagram. I feel like, again, I'm going to, you know, scold you for not being so active. We've had this terrible. conversation. So terrible. The last thing I posted on Instagram, I think was, uh, the Marine Corps birthday, AKA my alive day. I mean, so, which it is November life. 10th. Yes. Yes. I saw that. And, um, I do feel like your wife does a very good job of like keeping the, <laughs> Keeping the, the public followers. informed. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, okay, well, at least somebody now, and now she's doing it for you because, you know, you're a guy. Um, but anyway, so welcome to the podcast. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Yay. Like, for real. Yeah, it's great to catch up. Yes, for sure. So tell us, where mm -hmm. are you? So obviously you're, well, not obviously. I'll, I'll give you like a minute to gloat about where you live right now because I know you have a lot to say about Florida. I live in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, uh, Northeast Florida. So we still get some seasons. Like it's actually pretty chilly outside right now. Okay. Um, and a home of the PGA tour. If you're a golfer, the only people that know where Ponte Vedra Beach is are golfers really. Cause the headquarters for the PGA tour is here as well as TPC Sawgrass, which is a big deal golf course. If you're into that and, um, we have the best governor on the planet. So there you go. You know, you know, everybody wants to live in your state. So there you go. But where did you grow up? Was it Maryland? I grew up, yeah, Maryland, Baltimore. Like you ever see the show The Wire? Yeah. Yeah, like that. I grew up there. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. so kind of not so easy. Uh, not, um, grew up really poor, you know, yeah. and uh, I didn't live in like the ghetto ghetto, but I was like right next to it, right? Like, like literally right next to it. And um, so it was, it was, uh, I wouldn't trade it because I think I learned a lot about humanity and about like people and yeah. surviving, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, because when we were kids, it was just like, hey, you don't come inside until the light street lights come on. And then you're out there like fending for yourself. Like, holy shit. I learned a lot and I don't regret it at all. Totally. But Baltimore now, like it's a lot more dangerous. I mean, was so was it like dangerous when you were growing up? Because you're like, what, seven years old? You're 50. Right? I just turned 50. Right. Yeah. So you're like yeah. seven years older. So like when you grew up, was it still unsafe? Oh yeah. It was, it was unsafe. Like it's, it's sort of like with the times, you know, Baltimore at the time was just like on the scale of like violence in cities. Yeah. It was, it's sort of like in the same place as it's always been, except for we have so many more people on the planet oh. now and so yeah. many, so much more, angst so much you know all yeah. of the things that tend to deteriorate especially inner cities sure so it's just worse but then yeah. comparatively to like the chicago's and they you know it's sort of the same yeah yeah well family wise are you an only child no i grew up with an older brother okay so 
My brother's three years older than me. Oh, okay. All right. Is he still Maryland? He is. Him and my dad live together and enable each other's bad decisions. (laughs) You know, (laughs) yeah, they're great. Okay. (laughs) I love him to death, but like I, they would agree, you know, they would like, yeah, you're right. All right. Well, geez, Louise. So, um, what did you want to be when you were younger? Oh man, I wanted to be an astronaut. I mean, I kind of still do. Like, I, I know it's not possible. I, I mean, mean I feel like possible. you know enough people, you could probably make that happen with your connections. I mean, I kind of do want to go into space one day. Like, I want to, where when that becomes something that you can do, yeah. as long as I'm like, have the money, obviously, I'm like trying to be weird about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's much more important things to do with your your money. Uh, but if that's something that's possible, I mean, I would be one of the first people signing up to go. Okay. All right. So being in the military was not what you wanted to do when you were young. Oh God, no, no. Like my action, my dad wasn't, you know, he served during Vietnam. He did not actually go to the country of Vietnam, but it didn't change the way that he was treated when he came home. Mm. So my dad was like anti-army, anti-military, you know, growing up. And so it was for me when, uh, you know. And I live in a low-income neighborhood. Recruiters were everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere trying to get, you know, get you. And I was like, no, no, no. Until for me, it was the the Gulf War, right? So all the the patriotism started happening again. Like, oh, this uh, poor Kuwait's being invaded, that sort of story. And I was like, wow, that's like something bigger than me. Yeah. Right. And this is important. And everybody else seems to think it's important. And flags were like American flags were being put out, even in the ghetto. Right. That's how you knew it was real, you know? Yeah. That's huge. Uh, Yeah. And then, so I kind of caught that wave. And then I think really behind that was I can escape because I knew I had to get out of Baltimore. Right. Like I'm like, I'm going to wind up. I'm not special. Right. I'm not like, oh my God, I'm going to just make survive and be, you know, kind of get out of the drug scene and get out of this violence. And I'm just going to let no, like, I know that, I was perfectly susceptible to make bad choices. Sure. Yeah. And I I knew if I got out of it, like and left, I had an opportunity to start fresh. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of how I was too. I think we grew up kind of similar, but I was in Iowa. Um, So, okay. So that was not on the horizon, but so then what made you, so you joined and then did you, were you always National Guard? No, I joined, I was eight years active duty. You were. I was a paratrooper. I was, yeah. So I, my first four years, so I went to basic training and and my advanced training at um, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, And then went to airborne school and then got stationed in Germany as my first duty station, which I loved because I got to be the poor kid from Baltimore that (laughs) never was going to go anywhere. And I got to like, see the statue of David and go see the yeah. Eiffel Tower and like, holy shit, yeah. right? I'm like yeah. doing it um, and living and like realizing, you know, I think one of the most important things to, or most valuable things to me was, you know, I grew up, I didn't have a lot of self-worth. I mean, I always knew that, you know, I wasn't like dumb or anything, Yeah. but then, but you know, the way I was brought up and like, you know, my wardrobe, my access to like car, you know, like those types of things that, you know, yeah. sort of valuable to you as a kid. Sure. I didn't have any of those things. So it was like a lot of the less than, mm-hmm. and then I realized though, being surrounded by people in the military and then, and then even my professors, when I started taking college classes, I'm like, I'm smarter than these people. 
Yeah. Or, or, or just as smart. I don't want to make that sound like arrogant or anything, but like I started to see that, Oh, if these people can do it, I can do it. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about me. There's nothing special about them. There's nothing special about me, but it just made me, it sort of like leveled the playing field for like the rest of the world. And it it got, it got kind of contagious and I wanted more, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. I love that. So eight, so you did eight years or six years? Eight years. So Eight four years. years in Germany, a little under four years in Germany, and a little over four Fort Bragg. Okay. Oh, you were here in North Carolina. Yeah, I didn't know. Fort Bragg and our feet and knees together, airborne. Oh, uh, such a Ooh. cool town. <laughs> um, okay. So after that, then you went up. Why Why were you back in Maryland? Because you, did you deploy from Maryland? No, I went home to Maryland. Like after I got out, it's kind of funny. After I got out of the army after nine years, right? Or eight, eight yeah. years. Um, I went home. I'm like, I'm gonna go to University of Maryland. I got I have the college fund, the GI Bill, and sure. I'm in I'm enrolled. I was home for like six months. I was my first duty station was a special forces unit in in Maryland. And I was like, I'm gonna go SF, I'm gonna do this one weekend a month, special forces deal. And um when I was home. And I realized though, one, my National Guard unit, they were always gone. Like I didn't, like the National Guard and Special Forces units are deployed more than active duty Special oh, Forces wow. units. I, I did not know that. that at the point, but I was like, I'm going to go to school. This is going to be really hard. And so I was having sort of second thoughts on that. And then I was home and like all my friends from high school were living in their parents' basements, not doing it. And I was like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And then I was like, what's the furthest away I can get out of here? And I moved to California and I was in a California national guard unit. And that's where like I did, went to school in California, had my like first big boy jobs in California. Whoa. What city was that? So it's Santa, well, all Sonoma County. So it was in Petaluma and then Santa Rosa and then a place called Windsor. It's all, they're basically all suburbs of San Francisco. Oh, okay. All right. So is that where you got deployed to Iraq? It was at that unit? Yeah, it was. I was okay. I was with headquarters company of 579th Combat Engineer Battalion. Oh, okay. And it's funny. I wound up in a combat engineer battalion because they thought that my MOS, because my duty MOS, transferring from the Maryland Guard, my huh. duty MOS was an, was an 18 Charlie, which is a special forces engineer. Okay. And so I got to my unit and they were like, oh, you're going to be running the training room. We're God, we can't wait. And I'm like, what? And they're like, are oh, you going to teach us so much stuff? I'm like, I don't know anything about debt cord and demolition and all this yeah. stuff. They're like, what are you talking about? You're 18. I'm like, no, no, that was duty. I, I never went to training. Like, I never, that's not me. I'm not your Huckleberry. So, oh, that's so weird. Yeah, it is a little weird. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> sorry oh. to disappoint you. Oh, yeah. So, so, so when you went over to Iraq, that's what the unit was. Yeah, I was with in a combat engineer unit. But we were re-flagged as provisional infantry. So it's a Maryland, it's a oh. California company. Like, so I was at headquarters company, but it took our whole battalion of like 700 and something people uh-huh. to make one deployable, deployable company. And we deployed oh. this alpha company because like none of us knew each other because most people were like very overweight or very like had some condition, very old. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of old now um compared like for, for the military right for 20 like, yeah for a 20 yeah, right for like right exactly yeah um 
but that whole that whole thing it, you we were like not ready to go to war like and it's funny because when we deployed it was like the beverly hillbillies you know our uniforms didn't match our weapons were f- literally from the vietnam era like not kidding there was no when i you know i worked in the training room at, at my unit and i was like oh looking through training records i'm like people haven't shot their weapon in like 10 years six years <laughs> like all the i'm like i'm like that's insane i'm like but i'm gonna fix this so like i did an ammunition request to take yeah. the company to the range and they're like sorry there's no money i didn't have enough money in the california army national guard and this is back in like 2000 right there wasn't enough money in the budget to buy enough in the battalion budget to buy enough bullets to qualify one platoon of that's people terrible. so for those the people that might be listening so that's like training budget for 700 people i didn't have enough money to buy ammunition to qualify people recertify people in their primary weapon system for 40 people crazy yeah so we weren't ready to go to war but we you know like you go anyway yeah you go anyway yeah so um so i think that this is like the pivotal would you say this is the pivotal moment where life just kind of like uh, that wasn't welcome what happened to you and you did not plan for it, but holy crap, like you just got blown up. Like, what did you say? That was like the first season of life that was like, whoa, I don't even know what's happening right now. Yeah, I would. Well, I'd also say just, just the, the whole being deployed. So like I was, it was sort of melancholic for me because I, for some reason, I think it was in the right place, but it was some like sort of misplaced feeling like I wanted to go fight. Like, like I joined to fight yeah. and then the fight was over before I even went to training, you know? And then, so I was like, oh, I sort of like felt like, and the reason I, one of the reasons I got out after eight years versus staying in, I'm like, this is peacetime army. It's not what I signed up for. Um, and then just went to go like, let's go, if I'm going to do peacetime stuff, let's do it and make some money, you know? So got into pharmaceutical sales, worked for Pfizer, the big, big (laughs) Pfizer. Yeah, I was on the dark side. Yes. <gasps> yeah, that was I don't me. Know if we can be friends anymore now that I know that about you. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> no, I know. Um, so like even so, like the first, I guess the very first, like what the f moment was like just being deployed and with a group of people who weren't trained. Like I was rusty and I was way more trained than everyone else, including the leadership. Sure. Yeah. Right. And it was a struggle. And then, you know, we learned some really hard lessons over there. People were dying. Like we were getting killed. Like that yeah. was like, it was real shit. Right. And that, yeah. sorry if I cuss, I'm, I'm not yeah. sorry. I do it anyway. Just do it. Um, <laughs> right. We're uh, military. We cuss sometimes. It's who I, it's who I am. Right. Like, <laughs> it's me being authentic. Aren't we uh, all about that in 2023? Be yourself. Yeah, should be. be yourself. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, like, so the first was like waking up to be like, I could die. Right. Yeah. Right. Even though we're trained or whatever. So we took training very seriously. We actually got, you know, I kind of lovingly jokingly call when we first deployed, like we were like the Beverly Hillbillies. Like I heard banjos playing when we were rolling in right uh, in my head. But then we're like, we got to be good. Like we, cause the stakes were really high. Right. And when yeah. the stakes were really high, you sort of like, go like I gotta be serious about this yeah and that's not just me that's like everyone right that people wanted to be better at their at their job and then so we got better 
And then, um, yeah, the big aha moment for me was, you know, I'm in country, what, nine months, maybe a little more, 10 months at this point, November 10th, 04, headed out for a 72 hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation. We were supposed to get dropped off, you know, and then go like find the enemy, take care of business, come home. Uh, that was the plan. And it was the, during the battle of Fallujah. So like the battle of Fallujah just started. And so there was some coordination that we intercepted that, Hey, they're going to attack LSA and Aconda, which is where I was, AKA Balad air base. If you're an air force person, huge, significant strategic hub in the whole theater of, of combat operations in Iraq um, and Afghanistan, you know, in a, in a, in a different way. Um, but it was, you know, like, headed out for that mission. I was the leader of this mission. My platoon sergeant was just um, sort of hey, went down. He had a protruding abdominal hernia that he was going to get repaired the day that we left November 10th. Um, and he actually volunteered to drive the truck that I was driving, that I was, that I was in. He gave the, you know, gave the driver the day off. So, cause Mike was the kind of, Mike was my platoon sergeant. Um, he was the type of guy, he was like, my guys are going to harm's way. I'm going to be there with him. Yeah. You know, like I can't leave him out there alone. And so he drove, which platoon sergeants, for people who don't know, they don't drive trucks, right? They run in the command seat and they tell people what to do. They don't, they don't drive. Driving is what is left for like the lower enlisted, like new guys are the drivers. Sure. But uh, like when Mike said he was driving, I'm like, all right, buddy, you know. Uh, and then that it was, so it's four o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black outside, eerily silent. And it just, I'll never forget, like, head bowed in prayer like it was before every mission and then boom you know silence destroyed by the deafening blast that sent my vehicle myself like in the air in a ball of fire you know i just rem i remember being in the prayer and the, i remember i didn't see anything because my eyes were closed but i could hear and feel the truck like disintegrate around my body and then you know i woke up or open my eyes, I should say, because I, I might have been knocked out for a couple of seconds. I'm not really sure because, but when I opened my eyes, I noticed that I was ejected from the vehicle. Mm -hmm. There was a huge dust cloud. Like I was trying to figure everything out. And, but my legs were caught in like the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard in a car's truck. Like they were like, my legs were pinned in and I was on the, in the dirt. And I couldn't, like, I saw my weapon. I was like, Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. And I just couldn't, like, I couldn't move. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, going through all that, uh, I realized that, okay, let this dust settle. I'm listening to my team move with tactical proficiency, securing the perimeter, doing everything they're supposed to do. I'm supposed to be the guy yelling out commands. Sure. And um, I was saying nothing, but they were doing everything right. And then I just, I'll never forget this. So I had a new medic. My medic, Sergeant Goutreau, was sent with the Marines to fight in Fallujah because he was an amazing medic. And I got a new medic, a guy named Dan Smee, who was also an amazing medic, but I had no idea because I kind of just met him. Oh. And uh, and he had this like surfer blonde hair that hung down his face. It's kind of like yours. California. Right from <laughs> Southern. He was from Southern California, you know, National Guard. But I learned that he spent some time at Fort Bragg. So I was like, he can't be all bad. But I remember meeting him and he's like, oh my God, Sergeant Nevins' hair. Sergeant Nevins, bro, so good to meet you. And I'm like, this guy's high. Like, no way. Um, so when we got, when we got, I, I mean, I'm trying to, I want to tell this part of the story, but I don't, I'll, I won't use names. There was a medic that served in my task force that everybody he touched died. 
Yikes. Right. I don't think he was bad. Like, it's not like he did anything wrong. It's just like sort of luck of the draw. Like he got to people who were seriously injured and they didn't make it. Right. So I open my eyes and there's this kid. Oh no, you're like, like no, make wait, it go away. Look, you gotta understand. I'm bleeding out. Like my femoral artery is cut and I'm squirting blood everywhere. Right. I know this. I know this. Uh-huh. And uh, and I know that like I'm a you know, this is bad. And I literally tell this kid, I'm like, I'm fine, go check on Sardanalini. And Sardanalini was clearly um gone. Like yeah. there was no you know, he was, there was no chance, mm. no chance of, you know, but I was like, go check on him. I'm fine. I was not fine. <laughs> but I just didn't want him to touch me. Yeah. Right. Know? No, no. I just remember, I'm like, I, I go into that space of like, you know, your life flashes before your eyes. And I really wasn't, it wasn't like my life flashing before my eyes. It was sort of like a slideshow of all the things I'd left undone, mm. you know, like goals unfulfilled. And I don't really remember what they were. It was just like sort of the quality of the experience. Sure. I remember the last one. It was, it was my daughter all dressed up. She was 10 at the time. She was all grown up, dressed in white and walking down the aisle without her dad. Mm. And I, and I like snapped out of it. I'm Dan, I'm alive. I, I better do something to keep it that way. So I just like reached my hand into the wound and tried to stop the bleeding. And I slowed it down enough. And I was like, God, I, just wish Chardon Goutreau was here, you know? And I open my eyes and there's Dan Smee with his hair. And I'm like, I'll take it. You know, <laughs> like, I'll take it. And, I, and he just looked at me right in the face and lied to me. It's like, Sergeant Evans, you're going to be all right. Well, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. Right. right. Yeah. And uh, I like blinked my eyes. I had a tourniquet on my leg. I blinked again. My one of my team leaders was putting an IV in my arm. And then like, I blinked again, there was helicopter on the way, like that whole sort of surreal experience. Yeah. And I woke up in the hospital tent in, in, in the heart of Iraq, like literally right next to the main gates of LSA and Nakanda that I just left maybe 10 minutes before. And um, I woke up from surgery and there was a combat nurse's face right in mine. And I'll, I'll never know her name, unfortunately, and I'll never forget her face or what she said. She said, Sergeant Evans, you're a very lucky man. We managed to repair your femoral artery. We had to take your left leg below the knee. We managed to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too. Mm-hmm. And she was right. And, uh, you know, I about to have that big pity party, you know, like, fuck, what can a guy with no legs do? Like literally started hitting me. And then I thought about my wife, like, how is she going to love me anymore? Like that whole sort of scenario playing out. Mm-hmm. And then I just took a breath and looked over to my left and there was my whole team my family, you know, mm-hmm. just waiting for me to wake up. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all came over and surrounded my bed. And uh, we told horrible, horrible jokes and told some stories. And we talked about Mike, who I still wear this bracelet for every day. Awesome. And, uh, you know, we all shed some tears. And then I fell asleep and woke up at Longstreet Regional Medical Center and offer a two-year journey journey of trying to save my leg and not work, you know, that whole sort of thing, being at Walter Reed for two years, separated from my wife, separated from life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, early on, like, what can a guy with no legs do? Yeah. And, and Wounded Warrior Project, meeting him at a hospital bedside, like, you can do anything you want, you know? 
so grateful for that organization for like stepping in helped me realize that my disability didn't define me that i got to define what the rest of my life was going to be like and i'm still involved with them today like they're an amazing organization and um i'm just it's kind of weird i'm i'm actually grateful for the whole experience you know like what i've learned mm-hmm. as a result of like being a double amputee and figuring how to walk again. And then then you realize actually what's important. Sure. Like so many people stress out over things that aren't really worth stressing out over. Yeah. Um, I'm just happy I don't stress out over that kind of stuff anymore. Because once upon a time, I probably would have. Yeah. You know? It just puts so many things in perspective. And I met so many amazing people and you know, got to go on some amazing trips where I got to learn how to do stuff again and realize I can still snowboard. I can still, you know, parasail or go rock climbing or do like, I can still do these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just, that was a huge saving grace for me. Yeah. And I think, um, so you, you mentioned wounded warriors. I, I feel like around that time, cause wasn't that like 2005, like 2004, yeah. 2005 timeframe yeah. was that kind of when they, cause I was working at national guard bureau at the time. And I remember hearing about, um, the wounded warrior foundation and just, is that kind of when they became like more, more people knew about them was around yeah, that absolutely because they started showing up at ward 57, which was like the severely injured orthopedic ward. Mm-hmm. And with, I mean, they had no resources, right? They had very limited resources. So they would drop off these backpacks, which I got one and it turned out like everything inside of it was everything I didn't know I needed. And it was right yeah. there and a backpack and a promise, you know, whatever you need or whatever your family needs, we're going to be here for you. Yeah. And, uh, and they meant it, you know, and you could tell because what they had at that point, everybody in the organization had, had served as well. And they were there because like, including the, you know, the founders took huge financial risk and left their organizations and were living off their 401ks while they did this thing that was important to them to do, you know? Yeah. And so right around 2004, when things really started ramping up with, um, that's when IEDs first came on the scene, you know, like they weren't a thing in 2003 and 2004 they were, and then people were just getting blown up and blown up and blown up. And yeah. the hospital is full oh, of people. Yeah. And then that's when Window Warrior Project started getting some more notoriety. And they were recognized by the White House. They were recognized by like all these other senators and congressmen. Like, oh, this organization's doing something. Yeah. Like, Mm-hmm. I feel like we are the surgeon's office where I worked with. I feel like that backpack, like you just brought back. I'm a middle child and I also you know, manage MS. So my memory isn't, isn't the greatest. That's why I don't remember how we met. But when I when you said that about the backpacks, I feel like our office did some of that work with the backpacks. And so that's maybe awesome. that's how we met at Walter Reed. I don't know. Um, but going <laughs> back to kind of like when you realize like, oh, shit, like this isn't the life that I wanted. Like, what am I supposed to do? I feel like when it comes to diagnosis whether it's what you went through and you have even more story outside of that, but when it comes to multiple sclerosis, like people get like this diagnosis and it's like, my whole world has shifted. I'm not going to be able to do what I used to be able to do. I can't run anymore. I can't, you know, whatever. Like uh, I might as well just like this blows. How did you get over and how long do you think that it took you when you got to Walter Reed and you kind of you're like, well, crap. Now I have physical therapy, like every single, like, I don't even, how did you get out of that 
funk of like, my life is going to suck now. This sucks. The same way that I stayed sane growing up in a neighborhood where I was like literally threatened for my life walking to school, right? Like, you know, you would occasionally see a dead body. You know, you know what I mean? Like, like it, there was a, and I don't, I cannot remember who it was, but I remember listening to a motivational speaker talking about like whether you're happy or sad, it's your choice. Whether you're anxious, it's your choice, right? That you can choose to like not be scared. You can, and like, and that was for some reason just so relatable to me maybe because I needed it, <clears throat> it's sort of stuck in my brain. Sure. I remember being there in the hospital and, you know, being like, this sucks. And I'm in all this pain and pain, pain is a, pain is a great equalizer. Like pain will mess you up. But then when I was managing pain, like with pharmaceuticals and with like, you know, whatever else I was a, able to do to manage pain hmm. and I could start doing stuff again and I would feel like, oh, I can't. I'm like, well, that's me choosing that I can't. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm going to choose that I can. Mm -hmm. And then with that decision comes momentum. And then in the reality of all of it in life, really, like all of the things that we don't do or wish we did or whatever, you just have to do it. You just have to show up and just do the thing. Like, I, I can't run. Well, what happens if you try? Well, I can't. So no, just get your ass up. And like, try, like run. Okay, it sucked. You weren't fast. Who cares? You did it. And then maybe next time it'll be a little better. And maybe next time it'll be a little better. And yeah, you're not 22 and full of testosterone and vigor and you're not going to go win any races, mm. but you're going to be being good to your body. Yeah. You know? So I started realizing the way to cope was just to like, when something wasn't going right, and a lot of times, because I wasn't very present back then, I was, you know, I was on a lot of medications too. But mm -hmm. so there were times when I was like, this sucks and this is terrible. But when I noticed it, when I finally said, man, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. That's when I was like, okay, no more. Got to do something different. Yeah. No, I love that. Because I feel like um, people need reminded that it is a choice. And, you know, you might have crappy days, but that doesn't mean like tomorrow is going to be crappy, but it sure exactly. will if you have a crappy attitude. 100%. Sure 100%. will if you some keep people, talking about it. And some people go like, no, you don't understand what it's like. No, I do. I know exactly what it's like. And as much as you don't want to hear it, it's all on you. Mm -hmm. it, it's all on you. No one else is going to fix it for you. No drug is going to fix it. No doctor is going to fix it. It's all on you. Mm -hmm. And you have, and yeah, and you can choose, like you can be like, okay, I'm going to choose to be happy. And then it doesn't work out, right? Because something else happens. You have a flare up of a certain condition. You have something else that goes awry or something else that goes wrong. You just have to choose again. You have to keep choosing. And then it will work out. And it might not work out like perfectly, but it's way better. It's so infinitely better than just being miserable all the time. Yeah, true. Right? And think about all the opportunities that that have come to you just from what you did not want to go through, but did go through. Like right. 
you're actually a speaker, aren't you? So tell them about what you do for Wounded Warriors now. Well, for Wounded Warrior, I started an organization inside of Wounded Warrior Project called Warriors Speak. Mm-hmm. And it started because I was doing a lot of speaking and raising money and awareness for Wounded Warrior Project. And I got kind of worn out. I'm like, man, there are so many other stories to tell. So I started the Speakers Bureau inside of Wounded Warrior Project called Warrior Speak, which still exists today. And I don't work for the organization anymore. It's like I'm not an employee, but I'm still infinitely uh, and intimately involved mm-hmm. and uh, because I want to be. Mm-hmm. But eventually, so I mean, I might be jumping the gun here, but I became a yoga teacher in 2015 or 14. Can't remember. And uh, I just became really passionate about teaching yoga. Then I was teaching yoga at work at Wounded Warrior Project because I could, because I had so much sort of leverage. I was an executive in the organization to kind of do what I wanted to an extent. This is back before they were big, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, it was a little more kind of Wild Westy, a little more startup y. Sure. And, you know, I could do that kind of stuff, but then it became like, well, teaching yoga wasn't in my job description. <clears throat> so I was getting requests to speak to companies and they were paying me. And then, so I ultimately left Wounded Warrior Project, still staying involved with the Warrior Speak team, and then just becoming a speaker myself, a professional speaker. So sure. I just started, you know, speaking on big stages for big companies and kind of developed a, a little program and became pretty successful doing that. Yeah. Well, and that would have never happened. And talk about, okay, so yoga, you <laughs> don't have your legs. So explain like how you went from, well, crap, uh, how would I ever, you know, how, how would I ever be a yoga? Like what? Like, I don't even have legs. Okay. I'll just try. Maybe I'll just try. And then you like, just tried or, or like, how did that kind of like progress? Where did you find yoga? Right. You- That's actually funny. It's funny because when I was at Walter Reed the first time and the second time, uh, there was yoga happening there. And I remember like people coming in with like, Hey, there's this program, this yoga program. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Well, well, it wasn't necessarily because of like my injuries, like, what am I, how am I going to do it? Because they're like, no, it's adapted. Like they're telling me all this stuff, like, like, but I was like, I'm a dude. Oh, I forgot. Dudes didn't do that back then. Dudes didn't do yoga, bro. Like, no, uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh, right? No, not this guy. (laughs) It's not happening. I don't know who you think I am. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was a huge no for yoga. Like, and then I, once upon a time, I dated a girl who was like a yoga teacher and, and I sort of like played around with it because I'm like, this is my girlfriend, you know? And, um, but I was like, no, this is dumb. Yeah. This is dumb. Until I got to a pretty dark point in my life and I had a different friend who was a yoga teacher. And, Mm -hmm. and I was like, kind of pouring my heart out to this, this, this woman about how things weren't going right. And I was sort of in a, in a dark spot. And she said, Dan, you need some yoga in your life. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. I was so mad. Like I was so, so mad, but I was so desperate for something to change because the things that I was doing, um, weren't, weren't happening. I, the thing was, I had just had another surgery in my leg and I was like, sort of down again, like bedridden again. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I need to do something 
mm-hmm. right? Um, so I remember she's teaching me yoga and I still like, I was like using crutches yeah. and then I'm, you know, practicing yoga and I'm st- like hurting on my leg and I'm learning how to stand and do all this stuff. And I got so mad and I was like, this is not for me. Like th- I was like a hundred percent, like, this is not for me. Um, and I got so frustrated. I said, can I just try this with my legs off? And she was like, all right. And I, she was looking at me like, no, because then what am I going to tell you to do with your feet as a yoga teacher? Like, what am I going to, how am I going to tell you to stand? How am I going to tell you to, like her eyes were panicked. Yeah. Um, But her mouth said, yeah, let's do it. You know? And I just remember this is, man, I haven't remembered. I haven't thought about this in a long time. I, she's like, I'm on my yoga mat on my knees. And I was like, I, I was so mad. I was like through my legs. I was like, mother, because I was sucking at yoga. I'm like, yoga is so dumb and I can't even do it. Like I was back in that sort of like debilitating space. Sure. And, um, and I was so in it that, you know, I was trying to choose to get out of it. It just wasn't working, you know? Yeah. And, and I, and I'm on my mat, she's looking at me, probably wondering to say like, what am I supposed to tell this guy to do? But at that point I had sort of learned enough of the poses to be like, all right, let me try to figure this out. And I, there's a pose called warrior one. Well, there's warrior one, warrior two and warrior three. Um, but I'm like, I'm going to do warrior one because I'm a fucking warrior, you know, like, so I'm going to do it. And so I just remember and she, and by the way, like when she's teaching yoga, and this is the thing that sort of turned me off early on, she was saying stuff like root down and rise up, like root down, rise up. I'm like, what's that mean? <laughs> How do I root down? Right? Like, I'm like, press your feet into the earth. I'm like, what? Well, I don't have feet. You know, like the whole, all of that. Right. And then, so now I'm like on my knees figuring it out. And I'm like, you know what? And this is one of the things of choosing. I'm like, I chose that. I'm like, I'm actually going to do this because I was resisting. Like, I can't believe I'm in yoga. I can't believe I'm doing this. I don't want to be here. You know that, but I'm like, you know what? I'm here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it like for real. Yeah. And I just, at that moment, I'm like, on my knees. And I'm like, she keeps saying root down, rise up. What does that mean? And so I just visualized roots growing from growing from my legs into the earth. And then I'm like, all right, I'm visualizing that rise up. So in warrior one, you put your arms over your head. Yeah. And so I was like rooting down And then when I rose up, I mean, like, not metaphorically, like, an energy burst shot through my body and lit me up from the inside out. Like, it was like the earth was saying, here you are. Yeah. Like, Dan, where have you been for the last 10 years? Just floating above it, you know, like, not connected, like, that whole thing. And I was like, tears are streaming out of my face. Yeah. I'm like snotting. I'm like, holy shit. Like what happened? Cool. And uh, 
I was hooked. I was like, more of this. And then I kept showing up. And then uh, like a couple of weeks later, I signed up for teacher training because I'm like, I'm going to learn how to teach this. That's so and, cool. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm, I'm a lucky guy for sure. Wow. And I love how you, you know, in that moment, you know, we talk a lot about visualization Mm -hmm. and just because you don't have it right now, and maybe Mm -hmm. you'll never, you can visualize that you already have it. And I love that. That's a, that's a Mm -hmm. perfect example. Um, And I think that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is, what, you know, you physically has been taken away from you right now, you can visualize it and it might just, you know, the power of the power of the mind, the mind can do amazing things. And I just, it saddens me when people don't practice that every day, just alone time, just visualizing what you want. Um, and, and even speaking it, you know, like just. I think you and I had that conversation. It. Yes. Yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. And about speaking what you want and like, you know, you may have crappy days or you may have days that you feel like you don't have to tell the world. You don't even have to say it out loud. Yeah. You know, I do think that there's power in what you put out is what's going to come back on your body. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, sorry, I think especially in terms of healing, like if there's something happening in your body and it's not okay. If you think that it's not going to be okay, you're 100% right. Mm-hmm. Just like that old Henry Ford quote, whether you think you can or can't, you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, like, you really have to say, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to heal. My body's already healing. I'm perfect, whole, and complete. And my body just needs to catch up. So come on. Like, you know, yeah. like, I'm, let's, let's do this. Totally. And, um, I've had to say it to myself a bunch. You know, lately, so you were just uh, fine living your life just fine. You just got married like the best moment of your life. And then all of a sudden you were freaking diagnosed. I remember when you were like, and when you told me that you had cancer, I was like, wait, what? Wait, yeah. what? Yeah. No, but no, then, not Dan. Yeah. Never in a million years. Right. Cause I had a great diet, a clean, clean lifestyle. I'm a freaking yoga teacher. Like, you know, was physically fit, take, took care of myself. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it totally shook me. Right. Mm-hmm. But the benefit I had after going through so many different trials and tribulations, especially regarding like health, sure. you know, um, well, I can't really say that the leg stuff, well, I have a traumatic brain injury, like, but it's sort of the same. Cause it's really mentally, I can do it right. Like I can survive. I can heal. I can, you know, mm-hmm. um, I started talking to myself that right away. Right. And then I had, you know, I had surgery at Mayo Clinic, right. I literally had my wedding honeymoon because I got diagnosed pre and then they're like, let's, I'm like, Hey, they wanted to do surgery right away. I'm like, I kind of, I'm getting married in a couple yeah, of you're weeks. You're like, no, I have a honeymoon. <laughs> oh, can we just delay it a little bit? And they're like, yeah, fine. So wedding honeymoon, I had a couple days literally to prep for surgery. Then I'm in surgery and my first surgery went well, like it was, kind of textbook, laparoscopic colon resection. You know, they took out the tumor that was in my cecum, like right where the small intestine meets the large intestine. And they Mm -hmm. took the whole right side of my colon and then they patched me up and I was good. Like in the hospital, no pain medicine. I was doing great. They let me go home after two days. And then I was home for four hours and then pain, like a crazy pain was happening. And then I got fever 
and they were like right back into the ER. They admitted right away, and they were like trying to figure it out for a couple of days. But what had happened was like where they hooked my colon back together. That 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 line of staple line was seeping, mm-hmm. um, but they couldn't figure it out right away because <clears throat> it wasn't obvious on scans. But then I started dying after two days, and they were like holy smokes, and they I mean it's like ten o'clock at night, and they rushed me into surgery, um, where they had to like take it apart they gave me a, a bag like i had a ileostomy in, in, a, in a bag and had large intestine attached to my abdominal wall like oh, crazy crazy stuff and then and they couldn't even i was so swollen from everything that was going on they couldn't even close me back up so i was just laying back in the hospital i was in the icu for a few days and then went back to the regular ward and was there for 30 days just trying to heal and i lost 40 pounds of muscle um and and some fat but now like i'm trying to gain it back but you know like i lost 40 pounds of muscle in 30 days i'm like can i gain it back yeah no no it doesn't work like that <laughs> right? definitely not that fast no way definitely not that fast, right <laughs> um so just de- like dealing with with all that i had these four drains sucking crazy infection on my body and i had to like heal from that surgery enough like three months i, I finally went home and I had to heal so I can get chemo. And then I healed enough to get chemo, six rounds of chemo. Then I had to heal from that to be two months of healing from that to finally, after a little more than six months, getting everything put back together. And that surgery was seven weeks ago. I mean, it's like, okay, so it goes back to, it's the power of your thoughts that you, let's, let's be real, you, you, pretty much perfect. Like you would almost think that you had it perfected (laughs) up until this. You're like, okay, I got this. If I got through my legs being amputated and I'm still a positive, joyful person, like Mm -hmm. I got it. So the, you, you pulled that same kind of mentality into this diagnosis. What would you say was like your, uh, daily sort of routine? Did you have, did, did you make sure that you did the same thing every day to stay joyful amidst like the suffering? Like, let's be real. You suffered in the last year. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, it was in pain. And I, the hardest part was I couldn't really move. Like I could walk, but I couldn't walk for long. It's, Mm -hmm. and it really, it wasn't about my legs or my core, which cores, everything comes from your core. So Mm -hmm. if you want to be better at movement or you want to, you work on your core, Mm -hmm. your arms and legs follow along, right? Like your core is where everything's at. My core was wide open and my abdomen, you know, my abdomen was cut right in the middle and then moved off to the side. Same thing with my peritoneum. I mean, I started with the fascia. The only thing closed was my peritoneum, the little thin sac that holds all your organs inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, the, the wound that was open was starting to heal what they call it granulation tissue. It's sort of like they pack it with stuff and the mm-hmm. tissue starts to kind of build in in there and it heals from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. But that was open for months and months and months. And so I had no core strength like Mm -hmm. it was like when i stood up it's like my guts wanted to spill out of the open wound that was in my body right and they weren't going to spill out but it it was the pressure and it really felt like that Mm -hmm. so i had to do a lot of like sitting and a lot of like you know i couldn't exercise because if i did i something could go wrong couldn't lift more than five pounds for months and months and months Mm -hmm. so it was a mental game for me. My routine was, was like, I have to stay in a good headspace. 
So I, you know, meditation is, I think, the most powerful tool in the world for, I mean, for life. Um, but I, I couldn't even really meditate. Like I, I could try. And so even when you're trying, you are meditating, but it was sort of like, um, I was frustrated. And so it was all I could do to be like, to remind myself I'm perfect, whole and complete. I'm going to heal. Like I'm going to be fine. This is just a temporary setback. Like I'm going to be fine. The cancer is going to be out of my body because of stage three. It was in my lymph nodes. And I was like, it's not going to go anywhere. My body's going to be amazing at, at, at fixing this. And tur it turns out, because I was also like, how did this happen? Like yeah. colon cancer. I don't like do the typical quote unquote American diet. Like I eat well, right? Like, yeah. mm -hmm. and then, so it turns out, uh, which a recent passing is thing called the PACT Act in the, you know, in the military, that it was probably most likely from toxic exposure while I was serving because they just made basically what seems like all cancers, like any brain cancer, any intestinal cancer, any neck cancer, any like all these this melanoma, like whatever, all presumptive conditions. Like if you served in combat and you wound up with like any of this giant list of cancers, we automatically assume it's because of your service mm -hmm. and like what you were probably exposed to. So at least that was like an answer, you mm -hmm. know, it was, it was nothing that I did, Sure. but then like, and then like, I could be mad about that too. Like, oh, I can't believe the government did this to me. You know, like, no, I made a choice. I volunteered. Like, so none of that stuff came up because that one, that'll take you, you want to, you want to like suck at healing, start blaming other people for, for the yes. things in your life. Right. No, it's personal accountability. You got to like, I don't want to say suck it up and drive on because that is a little like military-ish. Yeah, it's military-ish and it's and it's like it's not that easy for people. Yeah. It's sort of like you gotta realize though that it's only person that's gonna make it better is you. Mm -hmm. And it starts right here in your head. Yeah. Right? How, do you, how do you think about it? What what do you think to yourself? What are the things that you say? Yeah. Did you use music or anything else to like stay positive throughout the day? Did you, did you find funny things to like laugh at? Like what else did you use? Oh yeah. Like I got deep on like meme reels on the internet. Like, you know, like, you know, like it's fun. Making like, fun of Biden. I mean, my God, it doesn't get better than that. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. So many things to make fun of. Like, and that's not to be mean. Like, I don't want to make fun of people. But there's okay. stuff that's funny, right? There's stuff that's funny. I'll laugh at myself. Like when- Oh, me too, yeah. Even back, remember when I said, like we told some horrible jokes to each other when I first got blown up? Yeah. I mean, they were making fun of me for like not being like, oh, it's uh, soccer's out of the question. Like, you know, like all oh, that. And that's, <laughs> that's how you're supposed to be. You're not yeah. supposed to be offended by stuff. Yes, yeah. You gotta laugh, man. Yeah, exactly. Especially at yourself. Mm, totally. Do you think that social media these days is hurting people's healing? Well, yes, but also no, right? So the the great thing about social media is there's so many great people who are positive and powerful and like sort of like bring light to situations and they're like little beams of light. Like you'll see some people and they're like little beams of light. And that's who you want to be around, right? Yeah. And yeah. then there are the 
total energy vampires, straight energy soul suckers that masquerade as like, no, I'm here to help, right? You know, like, yeah. And there's a bunch of terrible things um, on social media, especially, and people that like manipulate the sort of the operations, right? So it's sort of like they're they're taking advantage of how social media works to not only just hurt people, but just all self-benefit, right? Like all, and the, so the problem is with social media, while it can be very beautiful, it's also, you can't avoid to the terrible things about it, mm-hmm. you know? And especially the, the, well, I'll say this one thing. So while there are great things on social media, the attention span, like everything's like this short is really messing with people. Mm. Uh, because how can you, like the goal for me is like when I meditate, I want to meditate for like an hour, right? An hour of perfectly quiet mind would be like, that is joy bringing for me and soul renewing. And But like, if you're in that sort of culture of like everything happens so fast, meditation seems impossible, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, and I get that with my, you know, coaching clients that are, you know, want to learn how to be more mindful or whatever, you know, because I can teach anyone to meditate and be more mindful in their life, like anyone. But the problem is the obstacles of a short attention span are the hardest to overcome. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I can't do it. And I suck at it. Those are easy. But when people like they just need, they need to jump and kind of switch and turn on something else. It is. Um, it's keeping people from being connected to their family, keeping people connect and it's addictive. So that sort of oxytocin burst you get when you see something funny or you whatever. So you have to be mindful of that, like what you same way you have to be mindful of what you eat. You have to be mindful of what you consume. Sure. Yeah. Um, and no and I also think that it makes people because they are such a instant gratification. Like I have to like have this, I want to in healing, they think that it just needs to like happen right away. And if it's not happening, yeah. like then, then they get in their own mind and it's like, no, no, like healing takes a while. Like it could take years after oh, a yeah. diagnosis. Like you got to work at it and work at it and work at it to get to yeah. where we're at in life and being okay with not being okay every once in a while. Right. Yeah. And it's crazy too. I mean, it's just to your point, like, um, People are like, well, you had surgery, so you're good, right? I'm like, yeah, it's not really like that. I'm like, yes, I don't have cancer. Yes, I'm cancer-free, and I'm so grateful and so thankful. I said, but um, my abs were apart for six months, and the surgeons had to cut and slice and move and think just to get my abs to close. So, like, my abdominal muscles are so tight and so sore. I can't even stand up fully straight without it really hurting. So I'm like, I can't just go play golf. Yeah, no. I can't go. I can't go practice yoga the way I normally would. Right, all the the poses where you like things like up dog and things like that. Like that's not happening. It's not happening. Sorry, bro. Mm-hmm. And people just don't get it. They're like, no, we had surgery and you're cancer free. So like, all's good. I'm like, no, actually, it's really not like that. I have all this crazy fluid around my liver and a and a seroma over here, and I have all these adhesions sticking all over my bowels and my guts from three major abdominal surgeries in less than a year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's not all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, like I'm fine, and I know mentally, I'm better. mentally, right, right, mentally fine is way different than physically fine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so did you say that you coach people doing meditation? 
Mm-hmm. What do you I mean? very few select coaching client, like, um, cause it takes a lot of time. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's usually, uh, some executives that say like, oh, wow, I listened to your talk and I want some of the, what you got in my life. And so I'll, I'll work with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's really gratifying, really satisfying. It's just, it's just, it's just a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you working on right now as far as in your mind? Like, okay. Cause I mean, we're goal setters. Like it doesn't matter if we're diagnosed with anything, like we'll still set goals. So like in the next, in 2023, like what are your kind of visions and like, where are you going? I'm finishing my book, <gasps> my okay. book that I've been working on for four years. Yeah. And I'm literally about to throw it all away and just start over. Why? Because it's so much has changed. Like one of the reasons that I sort of got frustrated writing, because one, it's really hard. Um, I can write, I can write, but when yeah. I'm, when I'm writing, uh, the perfectionism gets in the way. Oh, uh, so bad, so bad. It has to be exactly right. Um, but then I, but I'm, I'm giving up on that. Like I'm realizing if I keep doing it the way I've been doing, it, it's never going to get done. Cause I never gave myself a goal about finishing it because I'm like, Oh no. Cause then, you know, it's not, I don't need to put a goal, a time frame around it. Cause it's ah, just cause you might fail and not reach it. So you might right. as well just not set it. Well, then I'm like, and then I'm like, if I get booked to go like speak or like, I got to do that. Cause it's dollars, you know, like, so all yeah. of that got, yeah. but now I know like I have to finish it in 2023. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Are you doing anything else besides that? Besides the book? Are you doing, are you, um, I'm revamping yes. the website. I'm redoing everything. I think I'm going to come out with an app, oh. uh, like a mindful moments app, like nothing like to pay for, like something that's basically maybe like sort of a c- companion for the book. That's okay. sort of like, here's something you could do every day to be more mindful and be, be more present. Yeah. Because I think it's important because people aren't. Yeah. People aren't. Right? And I feel like you have a lot of knowledge just based on what you've done in your life. And I, I think we were talking about that with the pod, the podcast thing. So I just, I think that you have a lot to offer and, um, you've got a lot in here that people don't know. So I think that's great. I think it's going to be fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, um, let's, uh, let's wrap up with just, I will put in the show notes about the PACT Act. You kind of, um, you know, we do, you know, I will, uh, we're both veterans. So we have a lot of followers that are also veterans that might not know about this because you told me about it a couple of days ago. Um, but we can put in the show link or or the show notes, the link to the va.gov talking about it. But if you want to just kind of, um, for those of us that are already rated. So why is this helpful for those that are already rated or Uh those that are not? So let's talk about both of those. Got it. So pretty, so it's the government admitting that they put people in harm's way for a long time in ways that we didn't even know, right? All the way back to like Agent Orange in Vietnam. You know, I think it's, so it's Sergeant First Class Robinson's. So he was a National Guardsman from Ohio who died of, cancer. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure it was lung cancer. I'm not positive. Don't, don't quote me on it, but it was more like, Hey, it's from this toxic stuff. Like, and I have nodules all over my lungs and, uh, cysts on my liver that are not cancerous, but like, I'm not supposed to be there, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I'm healthy. Like what the hell? I don't smoke. I don't, I only barely drink. Like what's the heck, like, what's going on? Yeah. So it's basically the government saying that if you served, um, and you get any of these things, it's automatically presumed that it was because of your service. 
which means there's no proving it. There's no, all you, you have to prove you have the, the disease. That's it. And it could be decades later because that's how it manifests, right? right? Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just show up right away. Like, oh my God, my cancer hurts after I yeah. got blown up, right? right? Like it doesn't, doesn't go like that. Like matter of fact, I never felt better in my life than when I got diagnosed with cancer, stage three colon cancer. Like I felt great. Um, and so for people who don't have benefits or rated, well, then they can say they don't have health insurance. They can get in. So now they have health insurance to the VA. Um, and they can, and, and this is what's really important. This is what I really want people to know so they can tell people about it is if you served overseas or you know somebody who has, and they've, they are probably have been exposed to toxic environment. So it's sort of like, Hey, have you ever uh, driven through the smell of a burn pit? They're like, yeah, all the time. Well, you might want to go get a chest X-ray and a colonoscopy. I don't care if you're 25 or 30, right? So it's sort of like, Hey, because this sort of awareness is happening. Go look because you can catch something early if you go look right now. Because if I would have known this 10 years ago, I would have probably had scans and then not had cancer because they could have, oh, it's just a little polyp on your colon. I could snip that off and you're going to be good. Okay. You know, because when they went in and did my colonoscopy, I had like a gang of polyps and a giant tumor, right? So, and well, all of those polyps could have developed into tumors. So I'm like, at least, at least I got it taken care of. And so there's that part and um, you could be compensated if you don't, you know, if you have cancer and it's, you know, you're actively fighting this and you don't have a VA rating and now you all of a sudden you can't work. Well, at least you can get some compensation. Mm -hmm. And then, so the, for me, well, I'm not going to get, I, I already got my ruling. I'm hundred percent service connected, but 0%. Uh, I got a 0% rating for it, which means that I don't get any money for it, but I'm already 100% disabled. Mm -hmm. So I cannot get life insurance. I should already have it, but I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, but now because of the PACT Act and the diagnosis connected to it, that if something happens to me as a result of this injury, then my spouse and my kids, if they're still young enough, can get their own benefits. That's so amazing. it's, yeah, exactly. Which is huge, which is huge. huge. The DIC compensation or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. um, and at least if I'm gone, I could leave my family with something. Huge. Like this, this huge. huge. So huge. yeah. So amazing. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Of course. So how can people find you? You're on Instagram, you're on Facebook. Are you, yeah. are you anywhere else? What's your website? Website's dannevins.com, D-A-N-N-E-V-I-N-S. Same Dan Evans on Twitter, which I don't really do Twitter very much, but I'm on there. Uh, same thing with Instagram and Facebook. You can find And me. watch for a new website coming in the next yeah. six months. Six oh, one's all busted. Yeah. Oh. Uh, hopefully, less than, hopefully less than six months for the website. Ooh, actively exciting. doing it right now. Actively doing it. Oh, who did? You have, you have people working on it? I have people doing it. Yeah. I'm, uh, mm, Heck yeah. Look at you, Dan. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for being so vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for giving us an update. I feel like there are a lot of people out there are like, where's Dan? Where's Dan? Like, you know, I mean, you're kind of a big deal. And so people are constantly checking. And so now they know. Exactly. And I'm coming, like, I'm going to be better. I have to. It's all yeah. part of the new... Like it's a new commitment. Like I revitalized my commitment to myself yes. to be kind of 
Cause I, I'm never more alive than when I'm actually able to like help somebody. Yeah. You know, whether that's with mindfulness, with yoga, with meditation, with whatever that is, or maybe just an ear or a shoulder, you know, um, that's when I feel most alive and most connected and I'm, I haven't been doing it. Yeah. So well, time to get better. welcome back, Dan. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I will share all of your information in the show notes and, uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks love. Take all care. Right. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye.